This is a production of the Z Talk Radio Network. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect those of Z Talk Radio, its affiliates, or sponsors. Wow. It's dark. Well, let's have some light on the subject. Put on your critical thinking caps and please refrain from hugging. It's time for Dimland Radio with your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Hello and welcome to Dimland Radio here on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. Remember, I'm not really a doctor. I just play doctor online. And uh, we are here in Minnesota. We are about set to complete our first week of uh, stay at home. The uh, The executive order that was put out by the governor uh, last week to see what can be done to combat this infection that is that the world is facing. And uh, we've had some... Uh, some rough news this week. I mean, if you watch the national news, the national television news, if you watch that, I mean, uh, like the nightly news, if you watch that, it's just, it's just, it's a horror show. And there's a couple reasons, for, well, a couple reasons for that. One, there's some terrible stuff happening. Uh, and two, a, a lot of it, as far as the United States is concerned, a, uh, most of that terrible stuff is happening in New York, New York City. And where are the headquarters for all the national news, nightly news shows? New York. So it's kind of easy for them to focus on New York City with a, with, a, with a bigger magnifying glass than they would elsewhere. So you, you notice that uh, I've noticed living here in Minnesota in a, in a section of the world that can get some severe winter weather uh, fairly frequently. Uh, when the Midwest gets hit with a big snowstorm, we'll make a um, we'll make a mention on the nightly news, the national nightly news. But if it's New York that's getting it, the nightly national news is much more focused on it because it's well, it's affecting them directly. So and it's easier to look out their window there and see what's going on than to you know send reporters out here or to connect with affiliates. Uh, in the areas where this having the snows, it's just easier. So the focus is there, but of course, the reason—it's it, just—it's horrific. It's horrifying what's going on in New York City, uh, from what we're seeing with this this the spread of this virus. I mean, it's it's not terribly surprising, considering the the dense uh, the denseness, the density of the population. It's, it's like what? How many million people living there? Eight million people living on that little island? Something like that. So it's not, it's not terribly surprising that they would have um, uh, as big a problem as they're having. Uh, and and it seems, and I so my heart goes out to them, and uh, we you know we, we look at what's going around here, and we're hoping that we don't get anywhere near that, and we might not get quite near that, but still, it's a uh, we're for as the president. 
President Trump, it seems like he's finally starting to listen to the adults in his administration, uh, namely Dr. Anthony Fauci, the guy that's the that's the the head of the uh, the, the uh, scientific end of the task force that the White House has put together on dealing with you know how we're how the United States will respond to uh, the the spread of the coronavirus that causes COVID nineteen. And uh, it seems as though he's been listening to him because it's, he doesn't seem to be pulling things out of his ass as often as he had been. He's, he's actually said earlier this week, uh, telling the country something that he should have been willing to do and doing more frequently earlier. He's saying, well, we're in for a rough two to three weeks because the peaks are going to start happening in about two to three weeks. I mean, it's it's coming. It's going to be leading up to that. So, uh, and that's because you know the scientists are listening or 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 are studying the numbers and looking what's coming on, and they're they're able to track where this is going. Not with you know not with a hundred percent accuracy, but uh, pretty closely. And I'm reminded of something that Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying fairly recently. He was making the rounds. Uh, before all the shutdown stuff started happening, he was making the rounds to radio shows and to uh, late-night talk shows, uh, promoting the upcoming uh, new season of Cosmos, which is should be starting soon if it hasn't already. Um, and he's been asked about COVID-19, and one thing that he said, and he says it, I saw him being interviewed, I think, by Stephen Colbert, and then being interviewed on a, for a radio station, I just saw the stuff on the YouTube, and uh, he was asked about the COVID-19, and he, re- he responded the same way in both cases. Uh, he said that it will. it's an interesting experiment that we're going to watch happen here. Will the American people listen to the scientists? Will they, you know, will they finally start paying attention to what the scientists are telling them. So that's, uh, you know, and let's hope that we do listen to the scientists. And we do seem to be uh, pretty good about it. Um, there have been, you know, uh, you know, it, uh, Dr. Fauci is saying that the, the, the curve has been flattened by measures that people have been taking, but we're still looking at, and this is the, you know, hold on to your, the armchair of your couch, or the armchair of your couch? The arm of your couch. Or the arm of your armchair. Whatever. Just hold on to it because it's we're still anticipating anywhere from 100,000 to 240,000 deaths from COVID-19. And it's just... <sighs> so, um, you know, I hope you're staying safe and staying home as much as possible. Uh, in your neck of the woods. I don't know if every state is now on a stay-at-home policy or not. I think there were just uh, like two or three left that hadn't done it yet, but it's getting close to... It's, I saw on a news crawl the other morning that 90% of Americans are under a, a stay-at-home order of some sort. Okay, um, <clears throat> now I wanted to talk about this, about how... Um, Needing to be clear about what's being said on social media, if you're going to respond to it, and I, I, I have a friend that uh, who's a, a very still for some reason a very staunch supporter of President Trump. Okay, fine, that's his choice. I, I, I can't understand how anybody can support him at this point. Yeah, but 
there are people that do. And all right, you know, they're human beings too. That <laughs> we just disagree. Um, he posted. I don't know if he wrote it and posted the graphic, uh, but uh, he, he wanted people to share it. And it says this. Current survival rate figures for the U.S. equals 98.54%. How about we promote that instead of fear? Now, my initial reaction to him was, how about you ask somebody that works in a hospital in New York City? Ask them that. Hey, you know... You know, most people are going to be fine. Yeah, great. But, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he said, well, you know, his response, my friend's response, well, that's colloquial. The, the rest of the country won't be hitting those same percentages. And I <clears throat> yeah, I think he meant regional, not colloquial, but, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and I said, yeah, besides, nobody likes anybody in New York anyway. You know, being a little snarky. I know, maybe I shouldn't be so snarky. And I mentioned this to a friend of mine who, uh, who asked, he's, he, uh, who, his response was, uh, he didn't respond to my, to my friend that posted this, but he responded to me. He said, he said because that's horrifying. <laughs> he says, what is 1.46% uh, of 350 million? Asking, you know, asking questions about numbers. You know, it's just it's like, you know, um, 1.46%, that's what's left over from 98.54%, 1.46% sounds like a real small number. And it is a real small percentage number. But when we're talking about percentages, what does that represent? Now, I started thinking along the same lines as, as, this, as my friend. I started thinking, yeah, okay, let's, take, let's figure out what 1.46% of the uh, it, what that is of the American, you know, population, which is uh, closer to, at least according to Google, um, 327 million, 327.2 uh, million people. It's closer to that than 350 million. But the census is going on, so, you know, that'll be updated, I'm sure, once the census numbers get through. So if you take 1.46% uh, of... 327.2 million, you get 4 million, uh, 4.78 million people. Some, something like 4,777,000 people. 4 million. And that's horrifying. Because my thinking was, and I started writing this up to, as a response to my friend who shared this, this, why don't we promote the bigger number instead of the fear? And I, I started to write it up. And I, I passed it off to my other friend to, at first for him to take a look. What do you think of this? And then he did ask me the question. And he says, well, it's well written, but, you know, I mean, what difference is it going to make? And I said, well, it might not make any difference for my friend, who's being a bit unreasonable here, at least in my estimation being unreasonable. It's not going to shift somebody who's being unreasonable from being unreasonable, but we don't do that for that person in social media. We do it as skeptics for the other people that read this so that they see the facts and they get the information so that they don't end up being unreasonable as well. That's why we do it. And I don't consider that being a troll. You know, it, I, you know, it's sometimes... You know, my, my, my friend said, you 
you know, maybe you shouldn't do some trolling. It says, I don't, how is this trolling? I, the, my, you know, my friend's being a bit insensitive here, and I want to, you know, come, you know, come back with facts and, and, and give a perspective here. So I write this whole thing up by, by saying that you've got 4.78 million people who are going to die. This is die, right? This is not, the, the survival means you don't die. You, know, you might not be in the best shape afterward, but you don't die. So the 1.46%, that's people that are going to die. So I, I was tr making that statement, and, uh, and, I, and I, before I posted it, I shared it with the friend. He looked at it, he says, well, it was well-written, you know, and, and so I, and before I posted it, I wanted to make sure it was accurate, I looked back at the, at the comment, uh, the original comment, and I looked at some of the other uh, replies to that comment, and I realized, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, I, it, this was, the, the original statement is missing something. It's missing a clause. It's missing a section of a sentence to put the numbers that come after it in pers into perspective. It's missing a little bit. Because it's not saying the way I took it. It's not saying the it's not saying that the the ninety eight point five four percent is of the entire population of the United States. It's saying that ninety eight point five four percent of those people who 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 get COVID nineteen, which is a much smaller number than 327.2 million. It's a much smaller number. Still a big number because the White House is telling us they're expecting anywhere from 100,000 to 240,000 people to die from this. So it's still a big number, but it's not as big as the number of the total population of the United States. That's what was supposed to be said in that, in, I think that's what was trying to be said in that, in that graphic that my friend wanted everybody to share. And so I said, you know, this needs, so I did respond by scrapping all that stuff that I had written, that well-written thing, well-thought-out, real point. I scrapped it because it was not right. Because I, I took time to make sure I'm responding correctly to what I'm seeing as being, you're kind of being an asshole here. <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure I was getting it right. <clears throat> so my response then was, this statement is missing a clause. It should, it should say, uh, it should, or it should say, of those who develop COVID nineteen, current survival uh, rate is blah blah blah. You know, the ninety eight point five four percent. It should have that clause at the beginning of it to, to put it in perspective. We're not talking about the entire population of the United States. We're talking about those people in the United States that do get infected with COVID-19, 98.54%, assuming that that number is correct, they will, be, they will survive. Not all of them will be just fine. There will be a, a number of them that might have lingering uh, problems, health problems. Some of them might get really sick and t require hospitalization and being on a ventilator and all that, but eventually will recover and be back to where they were beforehand. But there's going to, you know, 
there's going to be a number of people that will be a little messed up for the rest of their lives because of it. Uh, but most everybody, uh, from the numbers that I hear, the percentages I hear, most of the people that that uh, that that might might get COVID nineteen, anywhere from eighty to eighty five percent of them will just will just get through it and they'll recover just fine, and they won't have the terrible con the terrible um, um, complications or anything like that. They'll just they'll just get through it and they'll be fine. It's the it's the smaller percentage of the people that are going to have the problem, and it's the number that's going to flood the the healthcare system, the hospitals, and all that that is going to cause ripple effects and more problems for more people around the place. And a hundred thousand to two hundred forty thousand dead people is still a shit ton of dead people. So <laughs> let's not be so cavalier. And and to say, wow, well, you know, most of us are going to be okay. Yeah, most of us are going to be okay, but this is still serious. We shouldn't be just Pollyanning this and just, you know, we're going to be fine because we want people to be cautious, to take, to take precautions and, and to be careful. And the, the best thing that I've seen on the internets about this is that you should you should not be acting as though you're trying to not get the infection you should be acting as though you already have it and you don't want to spread it to others that's how you should be acting just you should assume that you have it and take those measures that you need to take to not give it to someone else stay home if you go out wear gloves i guess masks are now starting to become something that maybe we should be wearing it, it it's better than nothing you know so you know, limit your time going to the grocery stores. Try to do you know as much as you can in one trip, then little, little in drips and drabs. So anyway, stay safe, stay home. All right, um, where am I at the time here? Uh, I think I'm going to take a break and get to some some stuff that's uh, much lighter, much less uh, heavy to deal with, and. Uh, yeah, I'll try to do that. So you're listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Jim Fitzsimmons. I'll return after this break. Why was I born today? Life is useless like Ecclesiastes. I never had a chance to opportunity. Get him some Z's. Get him some Z's. Get him some Z's. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Listen to Z Talk Radio. On ZTalkRadio.com. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you think Bigfoot is real? Do you suspect that your neighbor is really Val Tor, leader of the lizard people of Bendar 3? Well, Dr. Dim doesn't, and he'll tell you why when you tune in to Dimland Radio Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern on Talk Radio Network. It's an hour of science promotion, pop culture rants, personal observation, and of course, skepticism. Join Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, Saturday nights, 11 Central, midnight Eastern, for Dimland Radio on Talk Radio Network. When, oh when, will someone design an exploding head emoticon? Please, someone, anyone. You're listening to Dimland Radio on Z-Talk Radio Network. 
You know, if I can maneuver into a tight parking spot at the mall, I'm pretty much sexually satisfied. And I've been to the mall twice today already. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio Network. To Dimland Radio here in the Z Talk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons. I have a cool thing for you. This cool thing is a documentary that aired on the uh, local PBS station here in the Twin Cities. It's called TPT, and it's a locally produced documentary, uh, part of the TPT's series called The Minnesota Experience, or Minnesota Experience, which if you watch uh, PBS at all, you know that there's a series, long time running, a long running series, um, called American Experience. And I don't know if other PBS stations have uh, um, various other states' experience shows uh, for their states, but we have Minnesota's experience here in Minnesota. And just this past Monday, they aired for the first time a new documentary, locally produced, about the legendary nightclub uh, First Avenue and 7th Street entry uh, right there in Minneapolis. Uh, that is the, uh, the nightclub that was made famous by Prince in his movie Purple Rain. Uh, and it, this, this, I think the documentary is pretty cool. It, it's, it's a nice, it's, it's a good history of it. Uh, it, it the, the club opened up in 1970. It used to be a Greyhound bus depot. That was... Uh, Built in the 1930s or something like that, and it was just sitting, not uh, it was sitting empty for some time. And a couple of fellows, and I'm not going to go through the whole list of names and all that kind of stuff, but a couple of fellows got together and wanting to start up a, a music club, a music venue, in in Minneapolis with uh, with a bar, and uh, and they 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 got a hold of that building and they converted it into a live music venue, and the first band to play. Uh, the first musical performer to play at First Avenue in 1970 was Joe Cocker. And uh, at the time, the club was called The Depot. And it went through, and a lot of live acts came through and all that, but it wasn't doing very well financially, and it sort of uh, folded a little bit. Uh, but then this, this national entertainment chain called American Entertainment, I think that's what it was called, bought the club or bought into the club or something like that and and con- and turned it into a a, a, a disco and, with some live music happening too but mainly it was for you know to to cash in on the disco craze that was going around the country at the time and it became uncle sam's uh it later they dropped the name sam's and then at some point they changed the name to first avenue uh and they tried to make it more of a live music venue, but there was always the pre-recorded music nights and things like that. Now, I started hanging out at First Avenue in late 1984. Uh, I became a weekly uh, staple, regular, uh, of the club 
uh, until, I don't know, the early, mid-ish 90s. I was there every week on every Tuesday for Club Degenerate. That was a special night put together by one of the DJs that worked for the club, a fellow named Kevin Cole. And it was the alternative music of the day and the, and the antecedents of the alternative music of the day, the stuff that built it and whatever else Kevin Cole wanted to play. So we would get, you know, we'd get punk rock and post-punk and industrial and goth and we'd get all kinds of really cool music. And uh, it just was something that became... I, you know, my friend John and I were just, we were there every Tuesday. Uh, we missed maybe a couple in the years that it was Club Degenerate. And eventually, into the, into the 90s, we just sort of drifted away. Club Degenerate stopped being Club Degenerate. It's called Club Two for One at some point, and then it's just whatever. And now the club still open, but it's mainly for live music. That's what it's mainly about. And so watching that documentary was, was cool. It was just cool to see some faces that were familiar. There was Conrad. Conrad was a guy that's worked at First Avenue for, for years and years and years. And he, he dealt with, uh, with the bands and getting them, into the, in, you know, getting them set up for the st on stage and in, their, in, the, in the little dressing room that they had there. And there's a door, it's a fairly nondescript door on the outside of the, of the building leading in. That's that is called the Conrad door because that's where he would you know escort the bands in and all that, and uh, at some point, the on the on the outside wall that wraps around the building, uh, they had started painting these stars on there, these big silver stars, and they put the names of musical acts and comedians and important people that have had something to do with First Avenue, and on the door that's called the Conrad door, they have a big star and it just says Conrad. On there, and Amy probably knows Conrad better than I do, uh, because Amy started hanging out in the club just about the time Amy, my wife, started hanging out at the club at First Avenue just at about the time when I started slacking away, you know, back just finding something else to do, something I don't know why, but I just did, and uh, so she was there, and she was there almost every night for a while. She was going there. She got pretty well known at the club, and I think she knew Conrad better than me, but I just knew who he was, saw him all the time. And there were other people that we saw in the documentary that said, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, there's Blake. Blake was a friend of uh, a fellow I used to work with. He went to school with my, uh, he was in the same class, I think, at the same grade as my younger brother. And I just remember him from school. And Blake used to work at First Avenue for years and years and years. And so there's an image of him shows up. And the bartender that worked in the upstairs bar at First Avenue, a fellow named Pete, he shows up. Well, I remember Pete. Now, Pete knew John and I fairly well because we'd walk in, and it's always great when you walk into a bar and you, that you're a regular at, and the bartender sees you come in, and by the time you get to the bar, the beer that you get is sitting there waiting for you. Pete would do that for us once in a while. He'd see us and say, oh, I know what you guys want, and he'd, he'd get us set up. That was always cool. So it was great to watch this thing. And one of the coolest, sub-cool things of this cool club and cool documentary about the cool club was that as I, I watched it a second time, or was watching through it, just looking at some stuff, they would have these still pictures of what was going on in the club in the days. I was hoping to find a picture that had me in the corner somewhere, but I didn't. Didn't find one. But uh, there was a there was a picture that flashed for just a couple seconds that was taken from the stage looking out at the crowd watching the band. And I don't know what band was playing, but there was a face. There was a, one head come, up above the crowd in this one little section that I spotted in that second time viewing. I said, hey, that's Dwayne. Dwayne was a fellow I went to art school with. Really cool guy. 
Very nice, very friendly, uh, super talented artist. Graphic artist, uh, illustrator, uh, cartoonist, really good, and a really good photographer. And he would do a lot of, he would go down to First Avenue, he'd, he'd do a lot of, uh, you know, he'd photograph a lot of bands and all that. Um, so he, there he is. There's his face sticking up there above the, the crowd in this one little spot. And I said, that's Dwayne. So I, I, I did a screen capture. I put a circle around it, popped it up on the Facebook and, 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 and tagged all my friends from art school and said, look, look, it's Dwayne. <laughs> I, I lost touch with Dwayne. Not that I had much touch with him. But I had his business card at one point. I can't even remember his last name. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I feel so terrible about that. But I used to have his business card around somewhere, and uh, he just was—he was just a really neat dude. And uh, it was cool to see his face in the pictures. So that was great. Uh, my friend Dave, who also hung out at First Avenue and all that, but he says there's an even better documentary about the music scene just prior to the time that I was hanging out at First Avenue, about a bar called Jay's Longhorn. Now, Jay's Longhorn, I think, disappeared by the time I was hanging out at First Avenue. But it did have a lot of uh, cool music acts, local musical acts go through, as well as um, national and international acts. But uh, I was never there for it. I guess that documentary, which is called Jay's Longhorn, uh, I guess it's available through Amazon Prime or something, I haven't seen it, but Dave does recommend it. Says it's really good, and it's it's very centered on on the music, which is even which makes it even neater. But uh, that's a pretty cool documentary about First Avenue, and that got me thinking of um, times uh, you know uh, I'd been to the club and bands I'd seen there, and I thought about uh, this one in particular. I don't know why. So I was looking up live stuff in on um, on uh, YouTube, live from First Avenue, and then there was one musical performing artist band that I wanted to look up, and it's a band called The Family. Now, The Family was a project that Prince was working with. Uh, Prince. Uh, would would he'd he'd be, he'd be pursuing his own music ideas and stuff for himself, uh, but he but he was but he would also do um, he would also uh, form these other bands and and funnel music to them that was a little more on the pop side or a little you know he wanted to do the more deeper more experimental stuff or something, and so he would pass this this more poppy stuff off to his side project bands. So I mean the man was prolific as all hell, in in his in his musical output. So this band called The Family uh, came up from the ashes of the time. That was Morris Day. Remember that? So if you me remember the movie, the, the, you know, the Purple Rain movie, The Time was the rival band of, the Prince, of Prince's band, The Revolution, in that movie. And Prince and The Revolution was an actual band. Uh, one of, you know, anyway, so um, if you recall the movie. Uh, uh, so Morris Day leaves, and other, the other Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, they leave the time. So the time sort of, you know, founders, and then then Prince decides to take some of the remaining members of that band and add some more people to it and create this band called The Family. Uh, if you remember Jerome, that uh, if you watch Purple Rain, Jerome was the uh, the sidekick of Morris Day's character. Well, Jerome was in that in that band, and so the so Prince brought in. A fellow named, uh, I think it was uh, Paul Peterson, and uh, they dubbed him Saint Paul. Tall, 
beautiful blonde man, and uh, brought in uh, uh, Susanna Melvoin, who was uh, Wendy Melvoin's uh, twin sister. Wendy was in ba Prince's band, The Revolution. So it brings in her, uh, uh, the, the Susanna, and so they are the lead singers for the band. And so he forms this. And in fact, uh, this was the band. I don't know if Prince recorded it himself before this, but this band, the family, was the, uh, was the first to record um, Nothing Compares to You, which was made into a huge hit by Sinead O'Connor a couple years later. Well, okay, so why am I talking about the family? Well, when I would go to First Avenue and the Club Degenerate Nights on Tuesdays, Something that First Avenue would do, and they would do this on their other danceateria nights where it's just pre-recorded music, they would bring in local bands and they'd lift the screen above the stage and they'd have the local band play for 10 or 15 minutes and then they'd put the, stage, you know, the screen back down and go back to the recorded music. And on the danceateria nights, which would be Friday and Saturday nights, the more disco-y nights, um, it wasn't necessarily very appreciated by the audience. Uh, but on Club Degenerate nights, when they would do a cameo thing, we, you know, those we were more into the experimental music and new music and different kind of stuff and alternative stuff. So that if they brought a band out, we thought, okay, let's check it out. And they'd they'd be on for ten minutes, fifteen minutes. They're done, and then we go back to doing the thing. So that's you know, that was kind of cool. So one of the local bands uh, called the Magnolias at the time, very very much influenced by the Who, this band, but um, and they were pretty good. And uh, so they you know, remember seeing them one time, and it didn't really disrupt the night. Well, uh, this particular Tuesday night, supposed to be Club Degenerate, uh, John and I get down there, and there seems to be a lot more people in there. And we find out, oh, there's going to be a band playing tonight. Now, that also wasn't all that uh, uh, unusual that there would be a band that would take over Club Degenerate. I think Skinny Puppy did that. There was one night when they did that. Uh, there was the cramps with the, the brilliant uh, Screaming Blue Messiah's opening for them, which was a Club Degenerate. You know, Club Degenerate presents, you know, e in evening. So you know it's just going to be all concert. Well, this was, I guess this was going to be one of those things, or, or at least mostly one of those things, and which we did not anticipate. So we get down there and says, okay, this band's going to play. They're called The Family. What's The Family? I don't know. And up comes the screen and the family. They come out. They're doing their thing. And it's very. the music is very Prince-like. And I just remember looking at my watch. All right, come on. Let's wrap it up. Oh, they're doing another song. Oh, great. Oh, that song's over? Uh, oh, they're doing another song. Oh, great. It's just, oh, would you please end this? Please end this, I kept thinking. And if you watch, and the video's on YouTube, I'll link to everything in the show notes. Go to dimland.com and click on the show notes. You'll, and you'll find a link to, to watch this video. If you look down toward the, I don't know if it's stage right or stage, I don't know, but it's, as you're looking at the stage, it's the left side. Along the left side there, you can see some, sometimes you see a shot with the silhouettes of people looking at the band. I'm in there somewhere. I'm in there somewhere. And here's the, the thing about this bit. And this is the I used to be cool aspect of this story. Uh, if Wikipedia is to be believed, I've read about you know, the family on Wikipedia. They said that they had performed one concert, released one album, and two singles before St. Paul quit the band because he got tired of Prince running everything. 
so if they only played one concert, that was the one that we saw, that I was at at First Avenue, and stood there thinking, you know, the one thing I remembered from the show was that the two lead singers were wearing long robes and silk pajamas. That's one thing I remembered, <laughs> and it's just okay. And I, and me being just impatient for it to them to finish up and get off the stage. I, the video that's on um, on the YouTube is about forty five minutes long, and and I was watching. I didn't watch all of it, but I was watching most of it. I'm thinking, you know, if I had just paid attention, these songs aren't so bad. They were doing some kind of. It was interesting. And hey, you're seeing a Prince band. You're not seeing Prince. I never did get to see Prince perform. That's as close as I ever got. But I was there. If that was their one concert, I was there. Well, where I'm going to be now is on a break. I'm going to take the second break here of the show. Uh, I'll be back um, in a little bit. Not that long. So you're listening to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. I'm your host, Jim, Dr. Dempton Simmons. Again, I'll return shortly. Well, I'll be Hornswoggled. You're listening to Z Talk Radio Network. You don't say. Oh, what? You think you went off to college or something? On ztalkradio.com. That's the most amazing thing since Grandma survived the outhouse incident. You're listening to Z Talk Radio's Redheaded Stepchild. It's Dr. Dim on Dimland Radio on the Z Talk Radio Network. like contagion are fiction, but disease outbreaks can and do happen. Early detection allows public health officials at the state, local, and federal levels to manage and reduce the spread and impact of a contagious disease. CDC stands ready to respond. Our scientists work 24-7 to address current and potential health threats. For more information about CDC's work or how you can stay healthy, visit www.cdc.gov. But we give those other guys the finger. You're listening to Z-Talk Radio Network. The All-American This is Rock and Roll Radio. Come on, let's rock and roll with the remote. And welcome back to Dimland Radio on the ZTalk Radio Network at ztalkradio.com. If you were listening through the break, you would have heard the little public service announcement that I threw in there about uh, uh, early disease outbreak detection by the CDC. I thought I'd throw that in there as a bit of, well, (laughs) what are we living through right now? Uh, Just thought we'd throw that in there. Uh, Also... The song that uh, played just as we were coming back from uh, from the break was a song by the Ramones. It's called "Do You Remember Rock and Roll Radio?" It's produced by Phil Spector. He's the Wall of Sound guy from the 1960s that did a lot of the, you know 
big big uh, music for uh, Motown. Anyway, um, so speaking of the Ramones, <clears throat> this uh, I found this on the uh, on the YouTube, and I was trying to look for something to distract me from the fact that we're all gonna die. Okay, we're, eventually, but you know, we're, okay, we'll be okay. Anyway, uh, there's this documentary that was put together by VH1 and Spin Magazine, and it, it was on VH1, I'm guessing sometime in uh, the, the 1990s, and it was um, it was called uh, 25 Years of Punk, meaning punk rock. And uh, the documentary um, uh, was on the YouTube, and I started watching it, and it reminded me of another documentary series about rock and roll. It was a long series. It was like 10 episodes, and it was on PBS. And one of the episodes dealt with punk rock. Now, I may have complained about this on this show before, because I blogged about it a while back. And the thing that bothered me, okay, uh, the PBS rock and roll documentary series, its installment about punk rock went something like this. It starts off showing you the roots of punk rock, which goes back to the Velvet Underground and uh, and before them the Stooges and MC5 and and then the New York Dolls and the Ramones. Punk rock kind of came up through New York, but then the scene moved over to the UK and started coming up. And there was a difference between the New York punk scene and the UK punk scene. The UK punk scene was a little more political, and the, the New York punk scene was a little more artsy. And and then they began to influence each other. And uh, you know, it started to grow and and all that. And, and okay, so that's that's how it's going in in that in the PBS version of it. And they spend a long time dealing with the with the beginning of it. So so it works its way through those those bands in New York and the bands in the UK. And uh, and and so it's so there's the New York bands are Talking Heads and Ramones and Patti Smith Group and and over in the UK it's The Clash and the Sex Pistols and and also in in, in New York there's there's Blondie. So Blondie is was always a little more poppy, uh, you know, more on the pop side of it, but they were still considered part of the New York punk scene. And they, in about 1979, they released the song Heart of Glass, which was a big hit. It's a great song. Still love that song to this day. Loved it when I was a kid. Love it still to this day. I think it's a great song. And <clears throat> according to the PBS documentary, the, the rock and roll thing, this installment about punk, which, you know, it only it's only about an hour, less than an hour. So there's only so much you can get in there. But according to them... You get to Heart of Glass in 1979, and then Nirvana in 1960, in 1991. The year punk broke in America, you know, Nirvana. There's like there's nothing that happened in between. They they skip completely the 80s, the 80s in which we had post punk come up and industrial and goth and alternative and all you know just all this you know indie rock and all this other stuff college radio all this stuff came up out of there and nothing not a mention no there's no black flag no no Ken dead kennedys no x no Bauhaus, no gang of four or ministry or minor threat Husker do the replacements there's no The Cure, no Smiths, no R.E.M., no Sisters of Mercy, Public Image Limited, nothing. It went heart of glass, nirvana. And it was just like, ugh. It was, it was, it was, 
It was exasperating. Well, I was worried while watching the 25 Years of Punk documentary. I was worried they might do the same thing because they, they would have the little bits where they'd break for commercial and they'd show you the little clips of what's coming up. And it, was, and it seemed like it was always just Nirvana is coming up. But we get, yeah, but, but, but yeah, but what about the 80s? And to their credit, they really did delve into the 80s. Not super deep because the documentary was only like 45 minutes. So they couldn't go super deep into the 80s. But we did learn about the dead Kennedy. You know, we, we did get something of the dead Kennedys. We did get something of, of Black Flag. We had the Henry, Roll Henry Rollins, who was in, in Black Flag. He did do some talking about what was going on. And there was Husker Du. In fact... In the, in, in the break to going to commercial, and they're saying coming up, they would show little clips of stuff. There was a black and white clip of a, of a bass player bopping around, just, just doing this, this move, and the move was familiar, and he looked familiar, and I paused it at one point, and I said, I think that's Greg Norton. Well, who's Greg Norton? Well, Greg Norton was the bass player for Husker Du, and it turns out, yes, Husker Du got a mention, and the replacements got a mention, and Dave Grohl, who was the drummer for Nirvana, uh, and you could tell at the point that he was being talked to in this documentary that he was in the Foo Fighter days. This is post-Kurt Cobain's suicide. He was talking about what it was like in the 80s for punk because not only you, so you had punk, then hardcore punk comes up and then those other things that they said, you know, goth and, and industrial and post-punk and all that stuff that's coming up through the 80s. And you had all these bands. And he said in America, it was a, it was a regional kind of thing. You know, it's just, all these cities had their own scenes, and these scenes were, there was like a network that these bands would hook up with each other, and they'd go to town to town, and, and, and that, that kind of stuff. It was kind of exciting. It was a, a do-it-yourself sort of scene that was going on, which the PBS documentary just completely ignored. But at least this one gave it its due. So I thought that was cool. I'll link to that in the show notes. But... As cool as I thought that was, it, 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 it did have one of these. And now it's time for a Dimland Radio pedantic moment. Yeah, this ought to be good. Well, early in the, uh, uh, in the, in the 25 years of punk... Uh, they were, you know, they, they, they have several talking heads, not just the band talking heads, but these, you know, people that they're talking to about the punk rock movement and what was going on. And there was a fellow in there named Legs McNeil. Now, Legs McNeil and another, another guy uh, put out a fanzine back in those days called Punk. And they were promoting the scene in New York and all that kind of stuff. So he was one of the guys, his legs, was one of the people that they talked to to give that perspective. And he, you know, he's a fine person to talk to to give perspective on this because he was there. He was involved in the movement. He was covering the movement. So, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. But he said something that, well, I'll play it for you. And I'll talk about it. So, okay, uh, put your ear close to the uh, your headphones, and and let's let's you know, take a listen to this. In a dark corner of Manhattan's Lower East Side, things were changing. The Velvets were writing songs about previously taboo topics. It's amazing to think at the same time that the Beatles are singing "I Want to Hold Your Hand," the Velvets come out with heroin. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's amazing. It's not true. <laughs> See, the Beatles released the song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, in 1964. The Velvet Underground released the song, Heroin, in 1967. The Beatles stopped touring in August of 1966. So by the time the Velvet Underground was coming out with heroin, the Beatles were no longer singing, I want to hold your hand. They weren't singing that. They had moved on. They had put out the Revolver album, which has this very dark, depressing song called Eleanor Rigby, which is about you know, people feeling isolated and, and, and desperately alone. It has uh, it has a song on there by uh, another one by Paul McCartney that that's uh, 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 got to get you into my life, which Paul said years later whether he was pulling our leg I don't know but he said it's about marijuana it's not a love song it's about marijuana and and then there's John's song Tomorrow Never Knows which may not be all that you know you know dark as a song like heroin but it's it's you know psychedelic and interesting and and, and you know it's it's not I want to hold your hand. And in 1967, they also released the song Strawberry Fields Forever. The Beatles, that is, which okay, it's not as about a, a dark subject as as the song Heroin is, but it's certainly not I want to hold your hand. And not only that, later in 1967. The Beatles would release Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So this this notion that Legs is trying to put across that this is it's amazing that at the same time the Beatles are singing I Wanna Hold Your Hand, you've got the Velvet Underground singing about heroin. Well, no, they weren't. It's not true. It's just wrong. What he should have said, and this would have been I would have gone right past me and said, Yep, I would have given it full approval. Not a smidge of pedantry. If he had said, well, it's amazing, while the Beatles were singing, All You Need Is Love, the Velvet Underground are coming out with heroin. Okay, that would have worked. And maybe that's what he wanted to say. But he didn't. All right, how much time have I got? Okay, um, another cool thing. I don't know what day it was, Tuesday or Wednesday. My wife was insisting on watching the national news. As I said at the top of the show, it's just it's just a horror show. What's going on in New York City? My heart really goes out to those people out there, especially the healthcare workers and what they're doing. Um, you know the 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 work they're doing. Uh, I it it just put me in a. A dark mood and I needed something I wanted to find something that would help lift it I last week I talked about uh, watching old baseball games full games on YouTube which uh, I've done I've watched another one or two over the week and it's just great it's just you just watch the game and you just feel like you know 
life is normal for a little bit. You watch it, and and it's terrific to be able to do that. Um, so I was looking through. Uh, I went onto the went onto the YouTube, and um, I found uh, um, there's there's a whole series of reaction videos. My wife slightly cynically but not but understandably said there's a there's some doubt about some of these reaction videos that some of the people doing them are pretending that they've never heard I've never heard this song before and this is the first you're gonna watch me hear this song for the first time and she says there's a little but I found two two reaction uh, YouTube video channels one has a fellow uh, named Jamel, aka Jamal. I'll just call him Jamel for to make it easy. But you know, so Jamel is just a one-man operation. He will, you know, he'll 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 play a song. He'll listen to it. You'll hear it as he's listening to it. And uh, he has in the lower corner, he'll have the little video feed of what he's pulled up on YouTube. And sometimes the songs he has has lyrics. So he he'll he will periodically stop the song make a comment about some of the stuff and then he'll back it up a little bit and start it over again or you know and get the song going again not start it all the way over but you know back it up a little bit start it and um he'll do it that way and then there's this other uh reaction uh series of videos that are done by two young fellows that are college dudes and they're named uh andy and alex and uh they tend to just play the song straight through. Sometimes, if the song has a, 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 a beginning that they com did not expect, if it just comes out of nowhere, they'll go, whoa, and they'll stop and say, whoa, did you, you know, dude, 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 you know, they'll do that. And and then, and they say, that, that was amazing. It's like uh, the, the Rush song, Spirit of the Radio, which starts off with this excellent Alex, Alex Lifeson um, uh, guitar riff. It's just excellent. And as soon as they heard, they stopped it and they looked at each other. Dude, 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 dude. You know, it was great. And <laughs> they're a little more articulate this just than that. But uh, so, but usually they play the song through and then they give their impressions about what's going on. But you watch them react to the songs. And um, the first one I found was it was it was Jamel listening to "Won't Get Fooled Again" by the Who. Yeah. And you know I know that song. That song's practically encoded in my DNA. 35 plus years of being a fan of, of The Who. I mean, that song is in there. It's just, it's in there. And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll watch, I'll, watch, I'll watch Jamil react to this. And you know he's you know he, the song starts with a, just like a like a like a bang you know a power chord crash and then it goes into you know with the, with the drums crashing along with it and the bass and just like there's a there's a bam and then it then then the synthesizer section takes over for a little bit and then the song kicks up again and just goes and and Jamel keeps saying oh we're in for a ride oh we're going on a journey on this one and 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 you watch and. Um, and so uh, Andy and Alex, they also have a reaction, reaction video to Won't Get Fooled Again, which they, once, once they were done with it, they called it a banger, a, a 10 on their rating scale. That's just, they were just jazzed about it. So you, I watch these reactions, and knowing the song 
as I do, I, I, I'm, think, I'm anticipating moments. How are they going to react to this? What are they going to do here? What are they going to do there? So if you know the song, uh, it's a longer song. It's like 8 minutes, 40 seconds or something like that. But it's a doesn't feel long at all because it's just it's it's almost a perfect song it's it is a perfect song um it gets to the second half of the song or almost the last quarter of the song it goes back into a synthesizer interlude a break where it's just the synthesizer playing for a while before before keith moon starts coming in there crashing in with his drums you know it just comes in there and then but just before going into that into that synthesizer break, Daltrey, whose vocals are just killer in the song, lets out one of the, the scream, this yeah scream. I can't do it. That's as close as I can get to it. But it, he lets that out. And I watch the reaction of Jamel and Andy and Alex. And they their eyes all light up. Oh, oh, when they heard that, it's like, oh, oh, did you hear that? And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, you just wait. You just wait, and it goes into the synthesizer bit, and it, it plays long. You know, doop, 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 you know, it's just going, and then Keith Moon starts coming in there with and then and then it goes, you know, a crashing uh, power chord. The bass kicks in there, and Roger with this even grander, yeah, the greatest scream ever recorded in rock music. You know, <laughs> you know, prove me wrong. It's just, it's just blood curdling. It's just chilling. It's just, just fantastic. It's just ah, you know. And to watch, especially Adam, um, Andy, and Alex, they just completely light up. It's like, <gasps> and they were so jazzed. The two of them were so jazzed by that second yeah scream that they, they just were just like, whoa, dude, dude, dude. And, and they completely missed the last line of the song, which is, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And they, but they got to the end, and they're just, they're just thrilled with the song, and they talk about all the stuff they liked in it, and the transitions between bits and pieces of the song, you know, how it worked and how, you know, how great it was. And, and, and they, they in, a, in a subsequent video where they're doing another Who song, they, uh, they called back to the won't get fooled again and they said that this is Andy and, and, and Alex and they said we we you know, we were so you know so caught up into that into that scream we missed the last line of the song which is you know and they talked a little bit more about it and it's just I just it just to watch that happen and and there are several who songs that they that they uh, that both of these reaction people listen to um and so I'm just, you know, I know the songs. I'm waiting for, to see the reactions to this, that, or the other. Uh, and it, w and so I will, in the show notes, I will link to the, uh, the both the videos uh, for their, uh, uh, the two reaction people to the uh, Won't Get Fooled Again. And then you can go find other stuff through that. Um, and Jamel said something that um, I thought was, uh, uh, was right on. He was talking about, he was looking at the lyrics of the song, and I, he was also saying right from the very beginning that, man, I've heard this. I've heard it, and he couldn't think of where he heard it. In the comments below, he asked for it. Somebody tell me, where's, where is this song from? And it's from, I kept saying CSI. It's from one of the CSI TV shows. 
And his later on, he does another video about the Who, and he says, oh, and thank you, everybody. CSI, why didn't I think of that? Anyway, so he's looking at the lyrics, and he's commenting on the lyrics as the song goes through. And he said, <clears throat> he said that, that he can imagine people so into the song, you know, knowing the song really well, um, just, you know, just, just going with the whole thing together and not really paying attention to the lyrics. And, and what, and what, uh, what, you know, he doesn't say Townsend, but what Townsend was saying in that song. And I thought, you know, man, that's kind of how I am. I just take it as a thing because watching Jamel react to it and reading the lyrics along with him and listening to some of his comments, I went, good Lord, Townsend was really angry when he wrote that song. That's, he's really mad. Now, I'm not going to go into the story behind the song and all that because I've, I've heard Townsend talk about it because I'm running out of time. But I'm just, I went, wow, that just gave me a different perspective because I've always known the lyrics, but it just was all just part of the package. And I never really, you know, I never really took it apart the way Jamel does. And I think it's, I think it's great. I, it's just, it was, it was so wonderful. It made me smile to, to know that people, you know, to see people discover um, this music that I know so well and to like it. Um, and I don't, if these, if these guys were putting it on that they knew the songs already, they are the best damn actors I've ever seen because their reactions were so natural, so, you know, so real. So, uh, check them out. Uh, go, you know, go to the show notes and check them out because it's, uh, and they, they do other bands as well, not just the Who, but for me, I, I, I needed, I needed a Who fix and, 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 and they provided it. Good night, Adolfo. Good night. Well, we're at the end of another show. Uh, be skeptical. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Don't panic. Wash your hands. Stay home. Stay safe. Uh, this has been Dimland Radio on the Talk Radio Network, and I'm your host, Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, reminding you to sleep with the lights off. check out my show notes at dimland.com. Just click on the blog option and you can email your questions and comments to drdim at dimland.com. That's D-R-D-I-M at dimland.com. And the opening theme song, Ram, is by Theolius and is used with permission. Production of the Z Talk Radio Network. And now a message to our competitors. Thanks. Thanks for tuning us in. Well, I'm going to hell.